As always, I'm always a bit nervous when it comes to covering a work like this, a beloved classic, which has been covered by a thousand other people and is considered well-trod ground. You guys asked me to cover Godfather Part 1 a while ago, and that was just nerve-wracking. Oh my gosh. And, well, here we are. <laughs> I could tell you about the behind-the-scenes thing, but after a certain point... Talking about the behind-the-scenes in a situation like this feels a little bit more like going down a checklist. I can tell you about the monsoons. I can tell you about the massive financial crisis. And the fact that Mr. Coppola was constantly putting up his own stuff as collateral for loans in order to get the film made. I can tell you about the uh, <clears throat> animal rights issues towards the end with the butchering thing, which we still don't actually 100% know what happened. I can tell you about... Uh, the heart attack that Mr. Sheen had, or the fact that his brother had to do the voiceover narration. Or I could tell you about the issues with the locals, because they were actually using Philippines hardware for some of the scenes, and as a consequence, they needed that hardware back at certain points. I could tell you about Brando, and how much of an issue he was. I could tell you about the scripting issues. I could tell you about the casting issues. But again, at a certain point, it feels like just going down a checklist. Let me summarize. This movie was a mess. I've only covered one other movie that comes close to this one in terms of just how messed up the behind-the-scenes production was, and that would be Star Trek The Motion Picture. And I think this one tops that one a little bit. I do want to mention something, though. If you're interested in the behind-the-scenes in this film, and I wouldn't surpri be surprised if you were, look up the film, or excuse me, the documentary Hearts of Darkness, A Filmmaker's Apocalypse, because that very very well covers exactly how much of a mess this sucker was. It's also worth noting that thanks to the time and lack of keeping track of things, there's still some holes in what we know and exactly what happened, like I referenced earlier. Before I go any further, I want to mention something. The first scene in the film with Sheen in the, the hotel room is, in my opinion, the best scene in the film. And I, I know what I'm saying when I say that, because I know that that was not really acting. It was just Sheen, who was massively drunk, flailing around and causing issues, and of course, actually injuring himself and actually bleeding and blah, blah, blah. But the reason I want to mention that is because that is the film in a nutshell. I know, shocking that a film about the Vietnam War would be about the fact that war destroys people, but it... I've discovered in my life that there's a difference between saying, this is horrible, or war destroys people, or they were traumatized. Those, those words and those sentences do get across the point, but they do so in kind of a distant fashion, a way, a, a disconnected fashion, if you will, where you're not actually associated with whatever it is, and so you don't really feel it, you don't really cognate it, it's just a factoid that you look at and process. Watching naked Martin Sheen stumble around, flailing, slicing up his hand, bleeding all over the sheets, falling to the floor, sobbing while barely covering himself, that gets across the exact same point far better. And that is the next thing I want to talk about. I know some people are going to be like, oh my god, I can't believe you can endure this film, Laura. But I can this film is astonishingly unflinching in its message. And it is only the one message. There is one point to this film, and it is hammered in over and over 
and over and over without hesitation, but without really repeating itself. Each smack of the hammer, just like if you actually had a hammer smacking down that nail, is just a little bit different, even though it's the same point, even it's the same report that you're hearing. Each time that hand brings that hammer down, it's going a slightly different path and hitting the nail slightly differently. And that's the film right there. Wham! 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 Normally, this kind of thing bothers me. I've talked about this with regards to Fight Club just this year. Um, 8mm is another film that I had trouble sitting through as a consequence of this kind of thing. Uh, I'm sure I could come up with others if I thought about it for a minute, but the point being, normally... This doesn't work for me. And I've actually been tying myself into knots trying to figure out why it works in this case. Oh, I could mention that the actual making of the film was so horrifying that maybe that's why it's so horrifying so accurately. But I guess my point is, I don't have an answer for you. The best answer I could give you is that not every situation applies universally. Just because one film does something and it works, and another film does something and it doesn't work, does not make that inconsistent. They are different works doing different things, even if they're trying the same approach. Does that make? That's about as good of an explanation as I've got. Because I love how unflinching this film is. I love how it doesn't hesitate to show really how bad things can get. And it, then it just moves on. That's another thing. Almost every time something horrible happens, it's not like it's a big climactic scene. It's just something horrible happens, and then the next scene happens. And then something horrible happens, and then the next scene happens. I, I don't know if this is even on purpose, but the fact that the film is framed so much by the boat trip makes this even more uh, powerful, because they're literally passing by horrors, and then they keep going, because they're, they're still on their journey going, going down the river, right? By the way, I just got to say, they're so young. Oh, my God. Everyone is so young in this film. Ford and Sheen and Duvall. Fishburne. I, I didn't even recognize him at first until he started talking. I was just like, wait. Holy crap. Uh, so, <clears throat> we hear Kurtzman. Uh, excuse me, Kurtz. Wow, this is not Star Trek. We hear Kurtz over the, over the radio and we find out what's going on and blah, 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 blah. This, I, I, I'm not, it's going to be kind of strange to talk about this film. I actually only have one page of notes, believe it or not. But that's because it's mostly just set pieces, and then we move on to the next set piece. Like I mentioned, the framing device of the river and the traveler, travel thereof. There's a wonderful disconnect. Um, there's this wonderful detachment that is presented at several times. Even as the face is being shoved into the muck, you're not feeling it because you're not there. Now, I don't mean that as in you, obviously, because obviously you are not there. What I mean is that that's how uh, Sheen's character tends to be portrayed pretty consistently. He's got this detachment to him. We also then are introduced to Kilgore's character, that is to say, Duvall's character, Kilgore. And he starts doing the death cards thing. That actually got me curious. I decided to look that up. Apparently death cards were kind of a real thing, but not really. There was a rumor slash myth going around about the spade being something that was considered mythological or whatever, so people would try to use it in, in a form of psychological warfare. But I wasn't able to verify the actual usage of death cards. In fact, when I first saw that, I thought they were just using them to identify people. You know, 
it's like, okay, you've got a deck. Each card in this deck is unique. So you can use this to, to make sure that each corpse is separately tagged and identified, right? Nope. Death cards. There's also this really messed up bit where the VC is like, I, I need water. And he's like, he's the enemy. It's like, no, nah, no, nah, anybody who can hold his guts in is fine by me here. Have some water from my canteen. Wait, what? This guy surfs? Immediately walks away, spilling some water, I might add. <laughs> This this leads to an interesting sequence. Uh, the morale of people who are in hell is one of those things that you just kind of have to manage as best as you can because you're in hell, so there's only so much you can do. They play right of the Valkyries. They charge in, kill a whole bunch of people. Kilgore wants to go surfing. While they're being shot at, while there are incoming and people are diving and ducking down, Kilgore's just standing there, utterly unfazed by it all. I have actually decided to do an experiment with this film, and I have deliberately not sought out other people's opinions, because if I do, I'm going to find essay after essay after essay about this film. In fact, I'm almost positive I have done an essay on this film back when I was in school. Now, that'd be like 20... 20 plus years ago at this point, but the point remaining, I looked at this and I was like, okay, you know what, I'm going to try and form my own opinions. I would love to hear yours in the comments, but if I massively disagree with you, please don't kill me with sticks. So why is Kilgore so blasé about everything? I was thinking about that, and the more the more I watched his performance, and the more I saw him as, as he, talking about surfing and talking about how they're going to deal with that, and leading up to the infamous Napalm speech, which is, of course, a lot more somber in its original presentation than it's usually repeated. What I saw was someone who acclimated. We are, by our very nature, adaptable creatures. It's actually one of our greatest flaws, in addition to one of our greatest strengths. And that means that when we are put into very horrible circumstances, we adapt. How we adapt is, of course, the question, and as I mentioned earlier, the central theme of the work, the insanity that war brings out in men. So, what we see in Kilgore is someone who just kind of shifted his perceptions until this is normal. And when it's normal, you don't react to it, because why would you? If you are on a, if you get in your car and, or, or get in your bus and go to work, and then have a normal work day and then come home, you're not going, oh my god, the phone's ringing, and, and I can barely deal with this, and there's so many people on this bus. You don't have that reaction, because it's normal. It's a Tuesday. And that is exactly how Duvall plays this character. This has become his normal, and as such, it is now exactly how he processes things. That's why he's so blasé about everything. That's why he doesn't care. They lose a helicopter in this assault. He didn't even bat an eyelash. He's talking about surfing. Why wouldn't he be? That, re <laughs> there's something wonderfully messed up about that. He also has that bit at the end, someday this is going to end, someday this war is going to end. And the way he says that is just so quietly matter-of-fact. Because And I could see that going one of two, two broad ways. Thank goodness, or that's a pity. Here's which one you think it is. Either way, we also, what happens next, the next major set piece when they get on the boat and they start heading up the river, is they encounter a tiger. And Chef just freaks out because of the tiger, right? 
and he just he absolutely loses it and they start shooting and wasting ammo and all sorts of wonderful fun stuff like that but he does flip he goes into what i would refer to as hysterics thus at this point of the film we've already had three distinct perspectives on how people adapt we have sheen's character who is so acclimated in his own way to the situation that what he does is he completely detaches himself from it. He's over here. Whatever his body's doing, whatever is going on with him, that's, that's detached. Doesn't, doesn't affect him. That's why he comes across as such a cold s s snake. That's the wrong word. He comes across as a cold fish. The whole film. There's just this blankness to him. Because he's not here. How does Kilgore deal with it? Well, he pushes it so that this is now his everyday and therefore none of it really matters to him in the same sense that whether or not you get a seat on the bus doesn't really matter to you, right? Which then leads me to Chef, who goes into absolute hyster it's just hysterics and, and loses it because he is absolutely not acclimating at all because this isn't normal and he doesn't know how to deal with that so he just flips out. A quote-unquote normal reaction. But the thing that the film does very well, as there's tons and tons of side characters as we're going through who all show shades of these different perspectives, and we'll see a few others later, too. These are all the methods by which they cope. How does Lance cope? He takes drugs, and he's got a puppy. You know? How does, uh, how does Clean cope? Well, he constantly just tries to present a front pushing himself up as someone who's antagonistic, as if he was back home and being pushed back about by some people who, you know, just, just wanted to, to get him out of line for the, the water fountain or whatever. And so he's got that, you know, standoffishness thing, I'm, I've got mine, you got yours thing going for him. A lot of boasting, a lot of bragging in order to try and maintain that bubble between him and what's going on around him. And I could go down the list, but this is this, is this game, this game, this movie's overall approach. So, they keep going for a bit. Speaking of it. They keep going and they go to the USO show. They get some gas, they get some ammo, he gets a free beer, and there's some women who are not naked. Um, they are, however, being rather suggestive in their overall approach. I want to restress the mo for a moment that I haven't seen this film all the way through until this viewing. That's important because in my notes during the USO show, the thing I mention here is, yikes, I'm glad they didn't riot. So you have a lot of desperate and terrified men who are barely coping with the nightmares and horrors that they are dealing with, who have three moderately attractive women who come on stage who start gyrating and being very, very suggestive. So naturally someone decides to storm the stage. And then, because one person does it, well, that's what we call a floodgate. Because the moment one person does it, everyone else says, well, if he's doing it, I'm doing it. Or, oh, I didn't realize it was acceptable. You know, I didn't know we could do that. And so more, and more, and more start hitting the stage. Thankfully, the guy running the event is paying enough attention to be like, all right, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> and they helicopter lift the women out of there, which was probably absolutely the right call. They probably should have done that a little bit earlier, if I'm being completely honest. I do find it amusing, by the way, that that same guy was like, we care about you, that's why we got you this show that you had to pay for. He caught that, right? They had a commissary and everything. <sighs> Anyways. I know, I know. 
it's economics. It's just frustrating at the same time. It helps to showcase how this particular war, among many others, was not properly supplied, I think is the way I want to phrase that. But that could get into a whole separate topic, and I don't want to go down that road, so let's just chop that one off, move back a little bit. There's this bit where... <laughs> Chief, I haven't actually talked about Chief much. The funny thing is Chief's overall mentality, how he copes, is actually... He's probably the most sane of all the people, which is probably why his overall character is the most tragic for me. I will also go ahead and admit that, Chief, admit that Chief was probably my favorite character in this work. I'd say Chief and Chef, no no relation, I swear, are my two favorite characters in this work overall. Since, well, I'll talk about Chef in a minute, but Chief, he likes, I already talked about Chef. Chief is just kind of trying to keep his head down. This is something a lot of us do in real life to acclimate. Keep your head down. Don't get involved. Don't draw attention. Just focus on what you're here to do. Each day is another step. Just keep walking one more step at a time. I think that's probably the biggest reason why Chief is so enjoyable for me, because he's the most relatable for me personally. I know that mentality, and I've seen it in others. Oh, by the way, the way I acclimate, uh, I tend to go with Sheen's thing. I'm not here. That's how I deal with severe trauma and horror. I know this because that's how I dealt with it. I hope, I hope none of you have had to deal with the sufficient trauma to the point where your brain has had to deal with it in the manner that these people did. By the way, I'm not trying to claim that I went through something as bad as Vietnam. Let's, let's not put words into my mouth. But I have been through some real stuff, and I'm sure some of you have too. And that sucks. One of the things I do like about this film is war is portrayed as absolutely nothing glorious. The most glorious it gets is with the Ride of the Valkyries and the Napalm line they do with the tree line. That's about as close as it gets. But war is not glorified here, which is a good thing. I mean, war in general should probably not be glorified, but I'm willing to bend that. I like Warcraft. You know, I like Starcraft. There's got to be an example that's not uh, Blizzard. I like Command & Conquer. You know. War can be enjoyable, and it can be romanticized, and it can be fun. This is none of those things. This is a lot of individual people who are dirty and caked with mud and bleeding and holding in their guts with a pan and just so forth and so on. Probably my favorite showcasing of this is when they stop at this stupid bridge and he goes in to find the CEO to check in and get some supplies. Uh, do you have the, do you know the CEO? No. Sorry, I thought you were dead. No. Do you have the CEO? No. Do you know where the CEO is? Hey, dude, there's this guy and he gets his, gets his grenade launcher. Very, very well aims it. Holy crap, that's a good aim right there. Kills the guy. Then, oh yeah, I know where the CO is. There's no CO of that camp. Everyone's just kind of operating on the wild. You'll notice that the guy who does the, the grenade launch, I didn't catch his name, I don't think he even said his name, uh, he also has the detached approach to acclimation. War is portrayed as horrifying and unpleasant and dirty and gritty and, un and it, again, unflinching, that hammer, wham! 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 
But again, each blow is just a little bit different. This is a good time to bring up the music, by the way. The music is psychedelic. Normally I would complain about this because it's what I would consider to be not good music, and I indeed never intend to listen to it again. But music as a music can be enjoyable in its own right, and music can be a tool for for an other work, like a movie or a show or a TV show or a game. And those are two different mentalities. They can they can coincide. There can be a song that is good to listen to and also suits you know is being used as a tool tool to suit the scene. But this is a very good example of it being a tool, not being something that's intended to be pleasant to listen to. The music is dissonant. It's off key. I would almost say at times there's just this twang to it, and it's not even the same type of music throughout the whole thing. It shifts around in style and approach. It comes across as if someone's having a fever dream, which is exactly why I praise it and its usage in this film. It took a lot of talent in order to manage to make this thing as endurably horrifying as possible, and I don't know what else to, to put that as, but it very much adds to virtually every scene it's in. Which leads me, of course, to the messed up nature of guerrilla warfare. Anything can be a trick or a trap. So how do you deal with it? You shoot first. Chief insists on pulling by this this boat and doing a patrol and, you know, checking it. Routine check. Okay, okay. The captain says, no, my mission takes priority. The chief says, yeah, well, we're doing this. Okay. So, they start searching it. There's nothing wrong there. there there's nothing there. It's a, it's a boat with some people who were going down the river. They may be supplying the VC. Those are supplies, you know, rice and food, a dog. But they are civilians, non-combatants. That's important. Because they don't know that, even though they suspect that. And that is the horrible nature of guerrilla warfare. But, and this is going to sound like the most horrible thing I've ever said. It is my opinion, in a detached, clinical sort of a way, that that is not an acceptable reason to start firing on civilians. That it is more acceptable that you, the trained professional who is signed up for military conflict should be willing to lay down your life if it is a trap rather than willing to accept killing innocent civilians if it is not a very unpleasant and cold calculated way of looking at things i will admit but that is something i believe you don't kill civilians you don't now try telling that to a group of people who've been on a... Imagine for a moment. I'm sorry, let me, let me set the scene here. Imagine that you're living in... Honestly, yeah, about the size of this studio here. It's not big. It's, a, it's about a room's worth of space with... Um, let's see, we got Lance, Willard, Chief, Chef, and Clean. I think it's everyone. So you got five people in this space. You guys were total strangers until you all got into this boat, right? You are packed to the gills with hardware, guns, munitions, so, you know, flares, radio, all sorts of fun stuff like that. And you're just kind of hanging out, doing your thing, on this boat that isn't really stopping as it goes up the river for days. Do you need to go to the bathroom? Well, that's what the side of the boat's for. There's no shower. 
Sleeping involves laying down on some metal and some plastic and hoping for the best. Oh, and by the way, you can be shot at at any time from any direction. You are a walking target. And you have to endure the stink and the pain and the heat and the sweat and the discomfort and the close proximity. Now, I've actually been through something very similar to this in my life more than once. It is weird how the brain just kind of shuffles things around to deal with something like that. But the point I'm trying to bring up is that is not a particularly pleasant circumstance. These are not people who are thinking in their right mind, as the entire film, and as I, have been pointing out this entire work. Now you add on top of that what I mentioned earlier, guerrilla warfare. You have to assume, in guerrilla warfare, that everything is a trick and everything's a trap, and respond accordingly, right? Well, that gets into, you know, philosophy, but or mentality. Now, remember the kid who shot first. It was, it was Fishburne's character, Clean. He's 17, canonically. I looked it up. Fishburne himself was actually 14 when he started filming this. Yikes. But yeah, he, he canonically, in character, he's a 17-year-old. Now, remember everything I said about the laying up to that? Oh yeah, there's also like mosquitoes and like, it's humid. I, I could keep adding on to just how unpleasant this is. Now imagine that you're going through all that while you are 17. Now, how capable do you think you're going to be of making the kind of cold, calculating decisions necessary as I presented earlier? So when a woman desperately runs after Chef, saying something... Clean shoots her. And then all of them just start lighting up the boat in general. Murdering those people. And I'm going to call that murder. <sighs> then, Willards walks up and says, we need to go. And he's like, no, she's, in, she's still alive. She's shot, but she's still alive. So Willards shoots her and kills her. And says, now we're leaving. Lance takes the dog. We lose the dog, by the way, in the course of this. The dog's gone by the end of the film. One of the things I find most horrible about that is that Willard is, in a way, correct. I, I, I'm not wanting, wanting to say that what he did was right. Obviously not. But the thing is, once you've already opened fire on the civilians and brutally damaged one of them, bringing the one that might survive to a nearby medical care place does not absolve you of that. This is how I'm with Willard on this one. Because that's the approach he takes. He only says that in the narration, immediately following it, as voiced by his brother. But the idea is we can't call it. We put a Band-Aid over it. Sure. Sure. Never mind how incredibly horrible of an idea it is to take a injured Viet, you know, Vietnamese woman to a U.S. camp where they're fighting the Vietnamese and are horribly shell-shocked and all of the horrible things that can come from that. And the best possible scenario there is that they will decide to deprioritize her and then she will slowly bleed to death. Good job. What Willard did was cold calculation and also a mercy. Because... 
he didn't open fire initially. That's the thing that's really interesting. I've, I've heard some people, I know I said I wasn't going to reach out, but I've, I've talked to friends about this. I know some people say that what Wheeler did was wrong and horrible. No, 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 no. What Clean did was wrong and horrible. He's the one who started this. And then the rest of them, obviously, they hear gunfire. Their reflexes are acting before they're even thinking about it. So the moment one person shoots, everyone's shooting. Naturally, this then leads to Lance being extremely possessive about a puppy and them going further down the river. I, I guess my point is that you, you screwed up, guys. Own it. What you did was wrong. Own it. Don't, don't, don't try to make yourself feel better by a token gesture. If you're going to do something to make things up for it, sure. How about you do something real? Rather than, oh yeah, sure, let's let's take her after we have machine gun. No, she's dead. She's just dying slowly. Token gesture. So they keep going. This is actually when the bridge scene happens. Sorry, I kind of mixed up the order there. I apologize. Then Lance starts doing LSD. I hate Lance. <laughs> and there's another reason I hate Lance, too. He lives. Two people live, Willard and Lance. Why does Lance get to live? Well, I, I know the answer to that. It's because screw you. But <laughs> the guy starts doing LSD, and he has a consistent issue. He, he ignores orders. He worries about the dog when Clean has just been shot to death. He... <sighs> He's the one who starts setting off the flare so that the people can see that they're there and start attacking them. This then leads to that hammer point I already mentioned earlier. Clean gets shot. Clean's dead. While he is there, currently dead, and Lawrence Fishburne is trying very hard not to move his eyelids. He's failing because, you know, he's 14. <laughs> There's only so much you can do at that age. But while he is there, while he is dead... While they're mourning him, she, uh, Chief especially is mourning him. The he got a letter in the form of a cassette tape, which he'd been playing in their little player, which somehow had batteries still. And he's playing the tape. Maybe it came with the package. That could be. Anyways, he's playing the tape, and as he's playing it, that's when they get attacked because Lance is a moron who's tripping acid, uh, literally. <sighs> The tape keeps playing because no one reaches over to hit stop. Because the tape was started before it goes. And we listen to his mother talk about how much she loves him and how much she's looking forward to having grandkids and how she can't wait for him to get home safely. It is very over. There is not a shred of subtlety in that scene. But it works. I, I'm not even sure I can act accurately tell you why it works other than the fact that that has been the approach the entire film has been taking. There's no subtlety here. Because it doesn't really need to be subtle. This is a hammer smashing down the point over and over again. So Clean's dead. Lance is irritating. They land. Dennis Hopper shows up. There's a nice little bit of juxtaposition. There's this bit where Hopper's character... I don't even remember his name, and I didn't write it down, so screw it. Hopper's character shows up. He's like, oh, man, hey, it's cool. I'm an American. Everything's awesome. How are things? 
oh, hey, cigarettes. Oh, I love cigarettes. Can I have a cigarette? And while they're talking about that, the camera makes a point of leaving in the scenes a man who is naked from the waist down and uh, dead who has been hung, just kind of slowly rotating in the background. The sheer utter lack of care there and the, oh, God, thank God, cigarettes. Again, nice juxtaposition. Hopper actually does a good job here. Believe it or not, this was something of a resurgence for his career, since his career kind of went out. And in fact, he would, to my knowledge, he didn't write or direct uh, after this point. He only acted. But he would come back to act in a few more uh, things, usually in like action flicks, um, Waterworld. You know, he, he ended up being in Speed, of course. But I like Dennis Hopper, even despite Super Mario Brothers. <sighs> The build-up of Kurtz... Okay, hang on, pause, before I move forward and talk about Kurtz, finally. It's the last thing I have to talk about. Would you believe there's 40 minutes left of the film at this point? They arrive at the camp, they've found Kurtz. There's 40 minutes left of the film. I only have one bullet point for that whole 40 minutes. I'll go ahead and admit that. But it's okay, because I've been building this point the whole time. As has the film. As Willard has been going through, he's been, he's been reading his dispatch. And he's been reading about the character. Kurtz. He's been reading about his career, his decisions, his letters, and he's been building up this great myth of this great, you know, powerful monster of a man, seven foot tall uh, in, in some works, and, you know, he's this great, you know, rugged, that, this is actually why Marlon Brando was cast for this guy. You know, Marlon Brando back in his, his day was, well, he was extremely rugged and very handsome, so, yeah. Well, I, I know I said I would only talk about so much about the behind the scenes, but Marlon Brando shows up and was apparently just the worst to work with. I have seen so many different sites and articles which have all cited different things that he's done, like throwing coconuts at Coppola while he was discussing the scene, or refusing to learn his lines, or being rather fat, and just all sorts of unpleasantness about this. And, you know, and the fact that they're, they're mowing the lawn right now. That was all Marlon Brando. If he hadn't been there doing that, then this wouldn't be a problem. Really? Come on, you couldn't wait like 20 minutes? Uh, I'll wrap this up quick, I swear, guys. Because all I have left to talk about is the film does this massive build-up to, let's call it what it is, a final boss. Kurtz is built up to be a final encounter for Willard. A big, epic conflict. Which is, by several accounts, what the original scripts were working for. And then they had all these issues and these problems, and it's like, we can't do any of that. What do we do? Uh, and again, remember, Brando refused to stay on script, but refused to even memorize his lines. So while he does react to Sheen's character, he, he, let me phrase that a little bit differently. While he reacts to what Sheen is saying, he does so in a way that doesn't quite line up, and in some cases literally doesn't make sense. It's just random gibberish and nonsense. What they did, though, was brilliant in its own way because they sliced and edited it very carefully to make it to, to just add to the level of how Kurtz has gone mad. Once again, one final look at someone who has completely lost it thanks to the acclamation of war. Or the acclamation to war? Let's call it the acclamation to war because it's the acclamation of man, but you get my point. He has lost it. And he has lost it in a way that nobody else has in the whole film. He is portrayed as a raving lunatic who is so disconnected from reality that he can't even think straight anymore. 
He actually acts like he is fully drugged out of his mind. And the first time we see him, he's laying in a room with a bunch of incense going. So, I mean, not that far out of bounds, right? You know, you get, get the toads. Anyways, <clears throat> he licked the toad. Anyone remember that? So Kurtz just, whew, and he plays this up. Chef dies. God dang it, I actually liked Chef. Like I said, he was my second favorite character. Poor Chef. He, uh, he was probably the second most normal perspective, by the way. Because the normal mind looks at horrible situations and just says, No! No! And it rails against it! This is wrong! This isn't how it should be! This isn't how I should be! Why am I here? No! <laughs> right? But no. He, he gets his head chopped off and tossed into Willard's lap. Neat. Then Willard sneaks in, chops him up. The horror. The horror. And the film basically ends on a whimper. A lot of people dead. Nobody wins. The Vietnam War was won by the uh, the North Vietnamese. I think it was the North. The ones who were being backed by the communist regimes at the time. They won. We lost. We all lost. And that's kind of the point, isn't it? I actually really like this film. I am astonished in saying that because it is the, exactly the kind of thing that I usually shy away from. But somehow it manages that tightrope of being something I can endure without having to be something that I, you know, have to consciously pause from and just walk away from. I said I had one last thing I wanted to share for the end. And. This is pure headcanon and pure theory, but I thought I'd mention it because, well, because this is kind of my job and I am a geek, and I have actually looked into this before. And this is the only opportunity I'm probably going to have to talk about this. All the way back when I was studying the Star Wars films for the making ofs for my ruminations on those, which I honestly think are crap and terrible ruminations, but let's just move on from that. When I was doing my behind-the-scenes research, I was surprised to see how connected George was, George Lucas, with several people with regards to filmmaking. Uh, Spielberg, everyone knew about that. But I didn't know he was actually a close personal friend of Ford Coppola. When I say close personal, I mean the two were tight. In fact, Coppola was was really a big backer of, of Lucas quite a bit. And the two were hung out and the two enjoyed each other's company and they were trusted each other. And they were, there was an obvious and legitimate friendship. And the two have spoken nothing but positively about each other pretty universally across their respective careers. Which leads me to something interesting. Uh, while I was studying for this film, I noticed that Coppola actually reached out to Lucas personally with a request for money. Just flat out, please help me fund this. Because of the nature of how long this movie took in post, and because of how this film production was, it's worth noting that this film was in production for such a stretch that they were still making Empire by the time it finished, even though this film actually had issues regarding uh, release dates and blah, blah, blah. Now, that that's all relevant, because Apocalypse Now had a demonstrable impact on Star Wars, because Apocalypse Now had a demonstrable impact on Coppola, and he had an impact on Lucas. I am going to share a theory of mine, okay? I think that Apocalypse Now and the fact that it nearly destroyed Ford, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's 
life literally nearly killed him? I think that this is one of the three major building blocks that caused Lucas's shift in mentality at about this point in history, which led directly to Lucas being more of a businessman and less of a creative drive, which led directly to Return of the Jedi being the way it is, which led directly to everything about Star Wars since then. I mean, the Irvin Kir the Kirshner film thing is probably the biggest thing I could point to. Because if, I, I've said this many times, if Lucas had been able to bring in Spielberg for Return of the Jedi, that that's a sea change right there. That is such a gargantuan, monumentally huge change to Star Wars history that that might have a significant impact on real history in several ways, certainly geek culture. And that couldn't happen because Lucas was putting his foot down on several things, notably against Kirshner. And it is my theory that one of the reasons he was doing so was because of these three things that were pushing him. I suppose I should mention the three things. Obviously, this film is one of them. But it's not this film. It's what it was doing to Coppola. It was the fact that Lucas was watching his friend wither and die about a passion project. One of the oldest rules in Hollywood is don't put your own money into the film. And Lucas and Coppola have both broken that rule over the course of their careers. And both ended up, it ended up working out, but by, let's be honest, luck. Not, not because it usually works out, because it usually doesn't. The reason that rule exists, but we had Coppola uh, spiral spiral crashing. The fact that he pulled out of that was a miracle. But at the time, he was just spiraling and burning. Also, the Star Wars Holiday Special, which I don't really need to say anything else about. And finally, American Graffiti Two, which bombed. Less money, plus a horribly embarrassing thing, combined with watching his friend basically destroy his life and career over a passion project. This, in my theory, leads to Lucas's shift in mindset, which several people have commented on over the years, which led to him getting more hard, hardline in a lot of his stance about, you know, we need to do things cheaper and easier, and we need to play things safe, and we need to be less creative, which led to significant conflicts with Kirshner over Empire, because Empire was doing the exact opposite of all of that, which also led directly to Return. No Spielberg, and playing it very safe. Because, let's be honest, Return of the Jedi was A New Hope too, And I only point all this out here, uh, first of all, because, you know, where else am I going to talk about it? But second of all, because it's interesting to see that while this film has had very obvious and demonstrable impact on cinematography and film history, it has also had its influence on geek culture thanks to its connections between its creators. At least, if my theory is correct. And it is just a theory. A lore theory! And I'm sued. I hope you've enjoyed, guys. I'll see you next time.